0: guest is Steven Burns. When I talked to Mark Gould, he told me about Steve that he stole from him constantly because fuck him, he's like the ultimate trumpet geek, king of the nerds. Long live the king. When I have mentioned his name in musical circles, the reaction is often mixed, but I have long understood that in the arts, such a reaction, more often than not, means I've struck intellectual gold. Beneath an often misunderstood character is an intellect of such massive value that what should shock American trumpet players is that he isn't more widely lauded as one of the best American trumpet players of the 20th and 21st century. I am happy he has joined the faculty at DePaul and would encourage anyone entering this dying industry to consider joining his studio. It might give you a fighting chance. I met Steve in 2011 at the Chosen Vale International Trumpet Seminar and found in him a generous man who was always striving to get students and professionals alike to think more deeply about their intellectual capacity in musical analysis and interpretation. He has since become a valued mentor, colleague, and friend. In our talk, we discuss the ways in which arts and academic institutions have broken a system of innovation in favor of stagnant conservatism, ultimately leading to the collapse of classical music developments. We talk about the complexities of defining classical music as a genre, music education, defining art and musical literacy, and about its relevance in North American culture. Few people I know are as articulate as Steve about the trends we see as normal in classical music today, but which are actually a disruption from the nature of the art form from the 1500s until the beginning of the 1900s. I often talk about how arts institutions have clearly shown an inability to change with the times. This has led to a curious phenomenon. We can all agree that the industry has cancer, but the institutions are trying to treat their mortal disease with essential oils instead of chemotherapy. In their plight to find out what content is relevant, they have lost track of the fact that this is a zero-sum game. As Well puts it, emotion is always relevant. Wagner will always be relevant. Our mistake is to think that Wagner depends on the Metropolitan Opera to survive. It is the institutions that are spelling out their demise, not the content. I am pleased to welcome Steve to the Art Salon. I hope you will enjoy his unique mind as much as I do. Yeah, why don't we dive in? So, uh, yeah, so I don't know if I told you a little bit why I want to do this or why I decided to go forward with this, and it's that um, I'm kind of tired of, brass podcasts that only talk about long tones we know interesting people in our field and in music that have other things to talk about yeah and those are the type of conversations i wanted to hear and be having so i thought i would record a couple of these and i wanted to talk to you because i think you have a lot of insights on a lot of things especially right now because i feel like people that have been kind of on the fringe of what is normal classical music, or whatever that definition has been made, I have I have better tools, even though it doesn't feel like that right now. But we we're better positioned to enter a new market, whatever that may look like later, because we're already kind of used to shifting with the current to some degree. Why don't Why don't you tell me how you're you're seeing the current situation and and maybe how it's not as different as it was before COVID, it's just accelerated or how do you feel about it?
1: Well, I think it is a very interesting time to really be uh, a creative artist. And I think that um, what is advantageous for the new music community is that we've always been trying to create a new context and content for for the tradition and that our entire uh, way of looking at the world of music is through the lens of newness, through the lens of how can we create something even cooler than what was done before. And my feeling about that is is that's the way the first 400 years of classical music functioned. And then about, you know, 100 years, maybe 200 years, 120 years ago, as people started recording, as people started to um, create these larger institutions. You know, if you think about it, the New York Philharmonic Society, which is not an orchestra, but a society, as well as, you know, the Carnegie Hall Society and and other organizations that created these large orchestral institutions. First of all, they started off for only about 25 or 30 weeks a year. And then they would, you know, shift and, you know, Tanglewood was it was the for one summer with the New York Philharmonics home And then for whatever reason funding and it's everything else Boston Symphony grabbed it, you know, and 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 then and so those and then that's how the 50-week season became a 50-week season and that and not until the 60s or so, you know, so And only for a handful of orchestras, you know in America anyway, but I think really what it was was is it, it is an opportunity to, to really, really go deeper into the culture. The, the thing that new music has always been about is, like, we are building upon a tradition, but it's constantly forging ahead. And, of course, uh, Debussy and Stravinsky and Strauss really, really, really kind of uh, tweaked it at the very, very beginning of the, of the 20th century, and um, harmonically, rhythmically, structurally, everything kind of went wow all over the place. And of course, then if you extend it into the twelve-tone serialism and modernism in general, then all bets are off and everything shifts. And that's when you know the ideas of, of neoclassicism or neo-romanticism or absolutism came in. And of course, it was all tied into. It's all very reactive to the fact that you know the composers and conductors at the beginning of the 20th century really wanted to establish their national um, flag of of German 19th century folk, you know, really, really, this is German music, this is French music, and they became very, very nationalist. And America was still kind of um, imitating. Even, you know, even the um, H.T. Burley, who was a black baritone and composer at the turn of the last century. When you listen to his music, it, it sounds like uh, late Romanticism and very much of it sounds one of you know, some of his music sounds like Korsakoff. Some of it sounds like Rachmaninoff or or uh, late Brahms or whatever. So, you know, as American composers, McDowell and others. They were copying European styles.
0: And to some degree, that went on for a long time. I mean, even, even still does to some degree, right? I mean, it's all coming out of a, of, of a sensibility of of, of of Europeanness. This is a concept that is sort of taught at music schools, but I don't think it's like drilled in to the minds of classical musicians. You said this wasn't what we've been doing for the last 120 years is not normal. It's not, it's not what our trend was in the arts in general up until that point. So why don't you tell me what it was back, back in the day?
1: Let's look at it. Let's look at the evolution, the waves of creativity, starting from you know the way it's taught in schools. It starts with Gregorian plain chant and then evolves into polyphony and does all these things. So that the center of the music world at one point you know, was uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe, and then it went to Rome, right? 500 years ago was like medieval times, right? 1500s, early 1500s, even before that, right? So we go back, you said 700 years. Great. Go all the way back into the caves where people are chanting and playing with overtones. You can go all the way back to Greece because the whole concept of classical arts goes back to Greece, right? So you could go all the way back there in this whole idea of Pythagoras and the, and the overtone series and it's all really, really wonderful. Except that, you know, 90% or 99% of the musics in the world functions in the microtone groove, not, into the, not in the diatonic groove. So there is, and you know, if you think about it, even 300 years ago, you know, they would have a different tuning for every key because a keyboard would tune in a different way. But now we have a Canon. Right, you could say you know it started with Monteverdi and Scheid, but Scheit was actually you know doing a um, you know he was play, he was doing he was playing in an Italian style. Mm-hmm. Everybody was Italian, and then then you know richness and favor went to France, went to Paris. So late Baroque was was French music. It wasn't Italian music anymore. So that and what happened was, of course, everybody built on the other ones, and everybody's like created these rules based on the, everything else. And the minute the chromatic notes of the augmented fourth and other things were, were allowed, you know, this is where Bach told everybody, look what you could do. And Handel went, whoa, really? You could really do this? And, you know, create these larger forms. And it was all based on, you know, exaltation of
0: God as an exaltation of, of crown. Well, I I think it's interesting that you go from a relatively large music period where there's not that much development or Western music period, which is, you know, chant through the Renaissance, essentially, partially because there's, like you said, rules established by a central authority being the church. And in general, through society, the destruction of the church as the center of, of all knowledge, I, I've always found so interesting that starting with Bach, we, in our minds, it seems like there's a long period between Bach and Mozart, but there isn't. It's immediate, almost.
1: Actually, there's, there's, there's an interesting thing, because we should back up on this one. There was Gisualdo. So as we get, it, it's, and it really breaks down into, uh, this is where the Renaissance is an interesting time, because all of a sudden people start getting educated. Before that, there, was, there, there, there wasn't any merchant class. So people weren't educated. Aristocracy was educated, but everybody else wasn't educated the same way. The church people were educated, and they were educated in church things. And so this whole idea, the fusion of folk music and court music and church music brought us through. And so then Gesualdo, the crazy prince, you know, know, he was really, really exploring chromaticism and who knows if you knew what he was doing or if he was just like throwing shit at the wall to see if it would stick <laughs> but you know it stuck it was it's really great music especially to contemporary chromatic ears right but you're exactly right so we have all these people you know leading up somewhere around 1600 the venetians had really incredible things in this whole idea of acoustics so this is where i'm thinking coming out of that era the medieval era where people start getting really creative with acoustic spaces, really creative with, with, with this idea of antiph- antiphonal. there's the idea of mixing voices, sacred and profane. It's really interesting. And then, you know, of course, it's all about making a living at some point, right? So, you know, the, the irony is that Bach is this genius of form and harmony and voice leading, as well as improvisation, right? Well, well, well documented. But his composition was not considered first-rate. He was considered a third-rate composer by the town of Leipzig when they went for a um, music director. They went to Telemann as the greatest composer in the land, who was prolific, hundreds of operas, hundreds of symphonia, concerti of the yin-yang. He sang. He was like Bernstein, except that, you know, he wrote, sang, conducted, fundraised, And by the way printed his own you know carved his own plates right he he engraved his own music and and distributed it so he was like you know boozy and hawks and lenny bernstein and uh you know he was the most famous we remember bach because the music is great what happens though is he was already by the time he was in his last 25 years he was out of fashion right his sons were in fashion. Alberti was in fashion. This kind of Rococo, you know, beautiful melody, simple bass line, limited counterpoint, limited harmonic surprise. You know, there was, and that's probably thirty or forty years before. You know, you know, Handel was still doing it, but he had to go to London to do it, right? The Germans didn't want anything to do with them. You know, at a certain <laughs> point, right? So then, that's really interesting.
0: And from and from Bach's. From Bach's sons to Mozart, it's like a stone throw. It's not even a generation. It's like a half generation. And
1: that's why we revere Haydn because Haydn took, you know, the, he looked at Bach's, you know, chromatic writing and said, "Oh, this is so great. We can, we can, we can bring this back." And he, you know, very cleverly wove that simplicity in the beginning and then just kept on building and, and pulling it apart. And you know, so and Haydn, you know, passed it on to Mozart and to Beethoven and to other composers of the time. But you know, Mozart died a pauper at the age of what
0: 33 or something like that
1: like crazy young right and you know yeah. because he, he had to tour he had to tour he had to write and you know it's like a lifestyle and everything else you get sick you die young every lot of, all those things there was so much but if you go you know timing wise you're exactly right you go from call it 1625 you're at you know 25 years later you're in you're in, you're at haydn and then you've got, you know, 25 to 50 years of, 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 of Haydn in there is, is Mozart and a bunch of other really good composers, but they really stand out. That's why this whole idea of they're the best of that time, right?
0: Yeah. And I think you also mentioned, I mean, go, just to finish that idea, it's like Haydn and Beethoven was already there by half to the end of Haydn's life. And then... Mm. 1800 was 10 years,
1: right, 10 years after Mozart died. That shift, Beethoven, and then into the early 19th century, we're still only talking about 30, 30 years.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I, I'm always baffled by that comparison because the way it, we study it seems so long. And then, for example, the other day I was reading uh, Bertrand Russell, and he talks about his grandfather being alive during Napoleon, and here's Bertrand Russell, who died past the Second World War, whose grandfather had been one of the negotiators of of Elba. Then it all comes into perspective, Napoleon and Beethoven alive at the same time. Bertrand Russell, three generations removed, could have talked to somebody about the innovative sounds of Beethoven. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Much in the same way that when I was studying at Juilliard, my favorite class was Felix Felix Gallimere's Sonata class. Because Felix Gallimere studied with Isai, who studied and, and Isai and Joachim. You know, so between Joachim and Isai, like, he had direct connection to the greatest composers of the late 19th century. And it goes like that, you know. Uh, but, again, the difference of sounds from, say, you know, 1625, 1650, 1675, 1700, and then Haydn 1775, Mozart's dead by 1790, we're talking about 15 years, right? 1800, Beethoven, early, late, Beethoven died young also. I mean, just these people died, you know, because, and so they had so much change and it was all about change, right? The, my, my point with all of this thing about classical music was, is did Beethoven program Pergolesi, Monteverdi, and Gisualdo in his recitals? Was anybody interested? Only the people who, only the music meisters, only the people who were like studying counterpoint and studying harmony. They went back and they, they went, they, they did their, their due diligence. But the audiences wanted new. Much in the same way, that's why Italian favor went to French favor, went to London. You follow the money of, of conquest.
0: I've had to be at a number of fundraisers for orchestras and stuff like that. And every once in a while, patrons will say, will Say that they loved the concert except for that new piece, and how can this composer be as good as Brahms? And I don't know enough obscure music history to come up with a name that we don't remember from Brahms's period that must have been very popular. And so we are kind of uh, under the impression that everyone used to be a genius. But mo- y- you've told me that you you feel that most concerts were probably not that great.
1: Absolutely, yeah, they no money, some under rehearsed, you know, and, and, oh, by the way, you know, when Mozart was the genius, Hummel was the, was the, was the, the man in favor. Right. And all Hummel did was steal Mozart. You know, it's just like completely lifted stuff. He wrote something, but most of the time we don't, nobody wants to play Hummel's music anymore. Right. It's like, and yeah, you could go through any of that, you know, you, it's, it's like wheat and chaff, you know, you have to go, you have to collect the entire harvest. And then you will winnow it into what the great, who are the greats of the period. But if you don't support the entire field of wheat, you won't have any bread to eat down the, way, down the road, you know. And that's the, that's the ultimate thing. And, and, the, and the point of it is, is that, you know, yes, Brahms was in the shadow of Beethoven. That was because that was the beginning of this idea of, wow, there, this is really something. Whereas, you know, Bach and Mozart never thought this was really something. They were just scrambling to get the ink to dry in time for people to play it so that they could, you know, feed their children or get on the road. And it was only in the 19th century that that came in. Right, Liszt and Brahms. There were lots of other people writing lots of different kinds of music back then. Yeah. Everybody had to kowtow,
0: had to do, do, do homage to, to the court, but we 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 always we still do that to a regard it's just the court has been spread to the whoever has the money to pay for the tickets i mean it's
1: in the you don't feel that no, way no i don't think so cuz i the tickets ticket sales really only amount for about 30% of the budget if that most of the time it's you know new music ticket sales it's 10% of the budget if you if you're successful
0: i mean that's true for new music and i i i know that and To some degree, it has to be true for the classical music world. However, like to some degree, that's what spells out that these institutions have made themselves in some way irrelevant, that uh, we're always looking for grants and we're always looking for private patronage because we can't rely on the music itself paying for itself. We can talk more about that. But what I mean is like whether there's a king or not, there's somebody that we're accountable for that's paying for it, whether that's the patron class you have an assumption that it was paid for before. You mean that the, the, the court wasn't paying its uh, artists?
1: Well, the story of the Brandenburg Concerti. Tell me that. That was, uh, that was a, 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 so, you know, um, Bach was trying to get out. He knew that his, his time was up in Leipzig. And basically, you know, he wrote a series of concerti to the Duke of, Mar, to the Margrave of Brandenburg. Presented them as a, I'd like a job. Here's a little audition. You know, here's a, t- here's, here's my, here's my tape. Here's my cassette. Here's my reel. Thank you. And it sat on a shelf until 1920 something.
0: Never played. But it never, 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 never played means never paid. But, but, okay, so that, that... that still happens to some degree. And I, I agree that things are better as far as musicians getting paid. And uh, you're right that it's an assumption to say that musicians were doing well. They're not. They weren't. But to some degree, uh, some of them had jobs that were being paid by the court. And before that, at least in the sense that monks were living in those quarters being supplied for by the church. Am I wrong in that? Well, I mean, again, monks, their main job is to be a monk.
1: It wasn't to be a, you know, that was all, ser- that's all service music. No, but I you mean, think about it, you know, all those arrangements of 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 Robert Burns and, and Scottish folk songs that Beethoven did, you mm-hmm. know, that was the beginning of the of the merchant class playing the piano and playing, you know, and having music in uh, in chamber music, right, in, in in Kama. So that's an interesting thing. But no, I, most of the history that I've read about, a lot of these people were that they had patrons and that, that, you know, the tickets were with some of it, but a lot of the times when you read Mozart's biographies, you know, he was going from town to town with a letter from another rich person somewhere saying, you really should hear this guy play.
0: Oh, no, I, I think we agree then. I, I, I guess what I was trying to say is somebody was paying for it and that the patron class will always exist, right? In some degree or What's in interesting some now is that there's so much ridiculous wealth
1: and, and no sense of patronage and no sense of, of um, people who are making tens, if not hundreds of million dollars a year. And there are many, many people in this country, as well as Asia, as well as, you know, they're not supporting the orchestras. They're not supporting the composers. So this is where I think this whole, you know, to jump to to really cut to the chase and jump to the present moment, this is where we need to, as musicians, figure out what's our role in the society and how do we get people to be really, really, really interested in music and educate them as to what it takes to make a great piece of music. Now, the reality is, is that you can make some really, really cool production items in your basement studio, in your... Right. There's there are any number of pop artists that started in the bedroom and then finally got into a studio and are really, really creative with, you know, doing things with simplicity and, and, and finding interesting colors and sounds and, and message. So then the question is, you know, <clears throat> how do we get people interested in abstract sound art, which is another way of calling it what I call new art music. And can we actually, you know, can, can we as institutions, right, as we look at, you know, universities, colleges, conservatories, can we, can we begin to educate people so that they are more holistic instead of training for the audition, training for the job, um, that we actually, you know, have people make things. This is where the apprentice, apprentice model might be better. I remember when I was first at Juilliard, there was improvisation classes at Juilliard. And they weren't just like free improv. It was improv in Baroque music, improv in classical music, came all the way through. And so there's no reason why, you know, this this is where I take Arban's and Clark and we do them in different patterns. But it's basically improv, right? You take a harmonic, a simple harmonic sequence, and then you explore rhythmic, intervallic, all the various techniques of of inversion you know go from duple to triple meter what i call neighbor tones right chromatic lower neighbors diatonic upper neighbors fully chromatic variation of of any kind of tone you know structure and and so that people become you know kind of fluent and comfortable making shit up because that's all composers do
0: i also think that it's a incredible opportunity right now like you said i i think we are in an interesting age you can see it particularly in hip-hop but in general in pop uh it used to be that the beatles and michael jackson could afford a home studio it was a multi-million dollar endeavor to have one of these things in your house so you needed to be able to afford tape uh now i mean you don't even need a studio but if you really wanted one with 10 grand you could set yourself up pretty nicely but you could just do it with a microphone and a, and a laptop and edit the crap out of it. We don't have those skills or they're not, we don't learn them in the classical music world because like you said, we're training for this goldmine of a job that, by the way, has been disappearing for a long time and is oversaturated with competent people to fill it. But at, at the same time, it's, it, it's that idea that why are we calling this becoming an artist when there's no fundamental there's nothing fundamentally new about what you're contributing to the scene by just repeating other people's work in perpetuity.
1: Yes, I think um, there are very, 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 very few in the brass world. I can count them on one hand who who, who teach who teach art.
0: I've had this discussion with somebody you and I know very well as well, and uh, we've actually counted them. And yes, you can. Especially in, in North America, you can really count them One in w- almost half of a hand. Really, it's
1: really amazing. Uh, this is where the American arrogance, because we do have really great players
0: in this, in this country. Oh, amazing. Yeah. The playing is, is off the charts. And the, by the way, the training for the playing is also something that, coming from Colombia and also having lived in Europe, it's crazy that you can go to any university essentially it's not just juilliard and and rice it's any college has like a pretty decent orchestra that's not normal in europe like most conservatories are known for one thing it's like oh that conservatory is good for their clarinets and that one's good for their strings and and they can't put together a symphony orchestra to save their lives and and so it is i agree with you it's like amazing the level of playing in this But country. it's
1: also, there's, there's a, 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 a fundamental disconnect from the essential message of the music. And that's, why, that's where I think you, you say that these institutions are dying. I think they're dying is because the, the heart connection that the European immigrants brought to America was was alive and well in the orchestras. And as the European immigrants started to die out in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s and now, that connection to the authentic mode of expression of the late Romantic and, and 20th century gone. And then, of course, there's this whole concept of authentic practice. And that's an interesting, um, you know, what is authentic, right? You know, at a certain point, it becomes, it becomes absolutely um, canned you know i don't want to be offensive about it but it's just you know people you know the the concept of doing a good job and nailing anything has is the farthest thing from what any composer has ever tried to say and especially if it was mahler or brahms or tchaikovsky or shostakovich or prokofiev and if you go back and you go back and you go back if you know you got to imagine that when when beethoven did the eroica and the 5th symphony and the, he added all those extra horns and extra trombones and extra trumpets and stuff like that. You know it was a train wreck. The heroic and all those repeats and all those things. And Will this thing ever end? And it goes on and on and on. There had to have been a whole bunch of like, right? Maybe not. But, you know, if you if you read the lexicon of musical invective, a lot of them, it just wasn't, you know. But people went for it. People made People made music. It was about making music. But but unfortunately now it's like you can hear orchestras that that don't function as a whole and that's where you know and they don't function with any level of enthusiasm so the audiences are going like i don't get this music it's not relevant and that's core shit because Emotion is always relevant. And and this music is emotional, whether it's Baroque, classical, romantic, post-romantic, or modern. It's emotional music. And this is where we've really missed the boat in terms of education. It's really missed the boat in terms of who's conducting. God, do I miss Lenny. That generation of, you know, yes, people would bitch and moan about Rostropovich not being clear. but God, you really felt everything that came off that podium, and it really meant something. Because he lived it. And now, you know, whether it's jet setting or whatever thing else you can throw at it, that's another one you can count on one hand. Who are the composers, who are the conductors that you would really want to interpret anything? That list gets really small.
0: Yeah, I think last time I played this game was with Stevens in 2016, the last time we were at Chosenville. And I think we counted 10 worldwide. And how many, how many are alive now? alive I guess, like eight are alive, but working about five, like I've said, is one hand. <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's you know it it's also part of what you said that in America, particularly this idea that the immigrants had brought it and made it so authentic because it was theirs. I mean, now we look back and we talk about old old white composers, but uh, you know when you read at the time, even up to Stravinsky, it was considered and and for people that forget, two wars were fought over this. The difference between an Italian and a French person was significant to these people. They, they did not consider themselves European in, in a whole in the holistic kind of eurocentric fashion we think of it now, and to some degree i in my living in Italy and also visiting Russia and Germany to see music, I, there is a feeling that that culture is very much alive to some degree there. I do believe that the people of Cologne want to see a Beethoven symphony. They want to see Beethoven 5 tonight. It's not about going to the symphony. It's about my German culture. Or in Italy, the opera is so alive that it's it's crazy and, and ballet in russia people still applaud to the correct turns and it's it's a it's a live culture and here it, i think it's starting to become it always was but it's too far removed to not be considered now kind of now industry. it's a product
1: i used to bristle at that term but now it's a product mm-hmm. and now we have to make sure that the product is relevant well you know um and that's why we take you know the that's where yo-yo ma takes a bunch of you know the, the youth orchestra and the CSO they go in the middle of the, of the highway and they stop traffic with Father Flager as a, as a peace statement, right? And that makes it relevant. And it's beauty. The thing about it is, that the, is the beauty of the tradition is what makes it relevant. And so this is where it's really interesting where um, people like Arvo Pert, who's now his time is pa- almost past, but he really, you know, took a stand in the midst of, of it all. And the same thing, Jacob TV, you know, Jacob he used to write the modernist stuff. And he just said, this isn't me. This isn't what we do. This is not our culture. And now he gets, of course, he gets slammed for being, you know, for appropriating pop or, or, or black music, but you know, he's, he's genuine in, in, in what he does. And I think, you know, there are, there are, there are many, 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 many composers who write really, really genuine music and, and they don't get credit for it. You know, you know, the French, because of the politics of modernism and everything else that's there, a guy like Telia Skesh, who writes phenomenal music and improvises like a, a genius at the organ, has a hard time getting a face grant. You know the French-American Cultural Exchange grant. I can't. I've tried to commission him. I've tried to get him to come. You know what? They he they are stonewalled, and and, and to have somebody so musical and to not, not be able to actually participate. He's doing what he's doing. He's writing, you know, church music, he's writing things for friends, and this is what is going to happen now. It's like you say, the institutions, the people who are making millions and billions of dollars, because they haven't grown up making music, because there's no forced education in the schools, it used to be that everybody played music through the third grade, and then in fourth grade, you had a, your or music through sixth grade, you sang in the choir and you had your flutes and everything else and played drums. There was always music 101 in seventh grade. And there were, you know, I was in middle school. We had, but there were three bands and a symphony orchestra and, a, and two jazz bands and three choirs and, you know, music theory. And, you know, the, the, the level of teaching was, was extraordinary. The, the, the theory got so good that he, the guy said, well, you want to learn how to compose? And, he started teaching us composition and brought Oliver Nusson in to uh, look That's at our amazing. scores. And we looked at his scores, and he was there because, you know, he was there at the Boston Symphony. But, you know, the, the thing about it is, is that we now have at least two generations of, of spotty music education. And even in my, you know, when I was growing up, it became, it was not part of the, the culture to be musical.
0: Right. I, I think there's two problems. First that Music is complicated in the sense that everyone that knows how to write can relate to a book because they've written uh, a grocery list. So, so they can understand what I'm reading now is spectacular because I know what it is like to put pen to paper. And this is amazing. Uh, somebody even we act every day in one degree or another. So when we see a very good play with a good actor, it's easy for us to be like, oh, my God, like, what am I watching? And I agree with you that music education being left aside has kind of screwed music over because there's not a understanding of what it entails, let alone that your love for it is is good and and that 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 it is warranted. I, I guess the question I had about that is how how much of of that is also the product of our own making in both classical institutions and in academia of convincing people that what we do. It's really complicated, and that the, the, the type of things that we talk about in, in across the arts, I think I mean I see it in museums that when somebody says, "Oh, I want to know more about this painting," they start talking about, "Oh well, you know, in Florence, they mixed a very specific hue of blue during this period. it's like, okay, but that's not helpful, and we do kind of the same thing in classical music. I feel like sometimes it's a, oh you you know that's very complicated, you won't understand this music, but maybe if you really concentrate, you will. And I, I, I wonder what your feel, I guess, is the relationship between audience and music and why, despite what the collapse seems like, we can't get rid of it in other facets of our of, of the zeitgeist, you know? Like. Right.
1: So that, yeah, you, you, there's really, really two, two sides to this coin. And, and, and the literacy cannot be overlooked. You're 100% right that everybody has written a thank you note or um, a a love letter with great passion and with great, you know, with great energy. And they recognize good writing when they see it, right? Good writing is good writing is good writing. So there's literacy, right? And so the the, the interesting thing about this is that there's, you know, that we think that, that there's inherent meaning to the art and art doesn't have meaning. Art has feeling and resonance and color and texture and, you know, yes, we can put a narrative to it, but that's what makes great art. Great art is everybody brings their own narrative to it. And it's, you know, then it becomes about aesthetics. And then it becomes about, you know, the the real challenge is to teach um, perception, is to educate people to allow their perceptions to touch them. And I think at this point, Our culturally, we have become so callous, and we've become so defensive that we have we are not in touch with our vulnerability. We have no openness to being touched unless it's invited. And actually, we have we have a um, we have a culture. If you really look at our our present day situation, that's dominated by violence. It's dominated by Bragadatto. It's dominated by um, by false narrative. And and so it and there's so much noise that um, people are walled off from their from wanting to engage wholeheartedly, and that is what makes great music work. Is that it? It and what makes concert experiences work is that it sets up an environment that allows people to feel comfortable in opening their sensibility to what's being presented. Then the question about explanation comes, this is where I differ from other people, is I am constantly looking for aesthetic marks to take people on a journey. You know, it's as if, you know, instead of saying, defining each tree and each animal and each landmark in the forest you know, it's more about we're going through this landscape and isn't you know, and there's a relationship between rocks and streams and trees and, and fauna and the sensitivity and the openness and the curiosity and the a willingness to not know where you're going that is what makes going to the theater or going to a new movie or going to a new restaurant. And people can tell you about the tastes of a restaurant, but the experience of a restaurant. And this is where people like Grant Ackett's that, you know, they, they present an it. it's, it, it is absolutely Gesamtkunstwerk in that it's, the environment is in such the communication is in such a way. And then the presentation, the, bowls the pillows to have a a, you know a sage-scented pillow upon which your plate rests when they open the dome and there's like these combinations of full sensory thing this is where people become disarmed and because we live in an armed society or i should say a an armored society and we have arms we have the arm of opinion we have the arm of righteousness we have the arm of, of, of extremity, extremism, which is this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. You know, instead of just really connecting with the sounds, rhythms, pitches, textures, colors, energies, and this is why I feel like, especially in, in experimental new music, it's gotta be heard live. You've gotta, you've gotta see and feel the commitment and the presence of the performers you hear a lot of this music on a on a recording sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but so much of it is is really really just wh- is, that's why people love these percussion quartets that are left and right that's why i think this is one of the great strengths of whether it's the carillon quartet or or um, you know michael's trumpeters and and and, and other groups uh, of trumpeters is that it's a very theatrical directional you know, you can do all kinds of wild things with this instrument, in addition to the traditional techniques. And, um, and this is where, you know, the the old school orchestras had a a performative aspect to them. When you look at that recording of Trike Five with the Boston Symphony with with uh, and Andre and Rolf and, and and Gauguin, you know, and they're just
0: and they're just
1: like you the enthusiasm and the passion and the, and the power coming through this orchestra but Chicago was doing the same thing in a very midwestern way but you watch Bud, when Bud is bringing it he, the, 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 the face would red up and the bell would come up and the place would light up <laughs> and it was just like wow
0: because he was making music from his heart, balls out all the time Dan Rosenblum and I did one of these earlier, two weeks ago, and he talked about a return. It, it's sort of the way he described it. And I, I think I had always felt this way, but when you hear it articulated by someone, it's great. If, if music has a power that is different from the other arts and every art has a specific kind of superpower that no other art can approach. And I think music is in that regard, uh, a language of energy. Which is kind of what he, it's what you said is it doesn't matter if it's Beethoven or Stockhausen it's all energy and the, the more you understand it as that as color and sound and energy and emotion in its rawest form the less you can you need to think about time period or instrumentation or anything it's just energy it it's it's like you just said with bringing Bud up uh, you know some of the recordings with Bud are awfully sharp missed notes and it doesn't matter to the listener one bit i'm a trumpet player and i couldn't care at all whether he is 20 cents sharp on that d in in uh, alpine symphony it's it's fine it's fine because the raw energy is so powerful that it embodies strauss much better than anything i've heard recently and and same with those early boston symphony recordings i i also love a Cleveland recording of uh Death and Transfiguration that's just like so emotional, but then when you really stop for a second, it's like, oh my God, this is terrible you know <laughs> like from a from a tuning standpoint or or whatever, but it doesn't it doesn't matter that, was that Zell or Mazel right. uh Zell and that's where things yeah. have changed, right you know
1: and and you know I, so it's it's an interesting phenomenon, but i, I you're hundred percent right and the difference is. This energy, sound is an energy that that you can't ignore, right? You can see Piss Christ and turn around and not look at it anymore. And you can walk out of a concert. You can, but it takes a while and you're, you're still hearing it. And also you're, you're hearing, you're feeling the way the audience, you know, nobody walks out of these concerts. So when people walk out, you feel the audience, you feel the whole thing. And that's a that's an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon that it's you know in order to appreciate a piece of, of of time-based sound art, you have to stay through the entire arc of the of the of the sound. And that's an interesting thing, you know, because of course what makes great art really, really is, is the totality of it, right? It is the it is whether it's arc or any other form, there there is a, a sense of beginning, middle, and end. There's, there's a whole uh, sensibility of, of unity and variety and, and all the complexity within unity and variety and the balance there within. And that's the, that's the difference between certain kinds of art music and certain kinds of, of, of commercial music or pop music or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, there's a reason why Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer Prize. Is because it was an art, a piece of art that had tremendous message and variety. And the unity of the, unity of the, of the message and the complexity and variety of, of the content was really powerful. And that was the shot across the bow. Actually, the shot across the bow came much earlier when, I don't know who the first jazz uh, Pulitzer was. It might have been Winton. But that was like a jazz classical thing. But again, you know, when they started saying, "No, we're going to open this thing up to everybody," that's when this hegemony of European concert art music, you know, was it was recognized that we needed to go beyond. We needed to refresh it. But you know, we could go back to that same conversation we were having about, you know, the 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 Eastern European chant going through to to the the present moment, and what it was was, you know, they started adding in elements from secular music. There was pushback. And then so the sarabande, instead of being like a, any other dance, was made to be twice as slow. And it became sexier. And, you know, all of a sudden the forms change. And then, you know, the, Mozart wrote Turkish marches and, you know, the the, the various the various folk musics and improvised musics of, of the local villages would find their way into classical and romantic music. And then you've got the full-blown thing in, in, in Mahler, right? As well as the, uh, Stravinsky, you know, it, he, he copped a lot of that stuff out of, you know, what, similar to what Bartok was doing, you know, a bunch of Roche, Russian folk songs that were, that were you know, twisted in a very cubist way. Cool. So you know what's keeping what's keeping you know really good composers from doing that now, and the problem is, of course, if you've got to write it for you know fifty violins and and twelve and basses, it's not a very nimble organism, so that you know, if you're if you're going to do it for a symphony orchestra, this is where the the the, the Sinfonietta model of one and everything it be- becomes much more versatile but I, and this is where I think that's what's going to happen this next year is that um you know, they're going to be new formation because the orchestras are going to have to break down into smaller string ensembles, smaller mixed ensembles. So, you know, they're going to be, we'll be playing to, you know, 25% capacity. So that we're going to have to be doing music that will sound good in very resonant spaces. This is where the, uh, the symphony orchestra in Chicago might have an advantage because the orchestra sounds better with an empty house.
0: Now, I want to... Maybe push back a little bit against, against that and I, I you and I have talked about we've we've messaged about this, but to some degree, my feeling is that for some of these institutions, because of the way they think and and that includes educational institutions i don 't know if they'll make this shift because they've refused, particularly in america they've refused to make it for the last hundred years. I mean it's a little crazy to me to think that we have an a, a division in this country between jazz and classical music and what is now hip hop or uh, any of these things because the reality is that there's nothing more truly of an american art form than everything that was developed in the 20th century that was mostly done not in the concert hall even though i really love zell and all that european input from those immigrants uh, it it's more relevant to the history of 20th century music. The fact that we had Aretha Franklin and Nina Simone and Miles Davis and Duke Ellington. And in, in some ways, like, I don't know, I'm often kind of dismayed by the solution that some orchestras have to modernizing their rep, which is basically saying we're going to do a concert where Herbie Hancock plays the piano and there's an orchestra behind him. And it just sounds kind of cheesy and it kind of removes the Herbie Hancock from Herbie Hancock. And so I, what, are the, what is your vision of it that you think could be different, I guess?
1: You know, push is going to come to shove on this one. You know, every, every generation had a new sound. Every 20 to 25 years, it was a new sound. The orchestras changed, the ensembles changed, the compositions change, the harmonic languages change. all the way through, you can start in, say, 1600, all the way through 1900. And beyond. That's this is why I brought up Rockefeller, because the Rockefellers were really very influential, and, and their type they weren't the only ones, right? You know, you know where Rockefeller got their their funds, right?
0: Oil, and then the Vanderbilt with railroads, and you know all these things. again, it's, it's you know
1: mining that which is already there, and as they as is said in "There Will Be Blood," I put my straw in your milkshake. European and American oligarchs have put our straw into every mine and well and forest. And that is the legacy of the 20th century. This is the legacy. This is the karma. This is what we have to actually work through. When people say we've got to do the work is that we have a complete culture based on pillage. You know, the the... the um, the, the byproduct of tra- tragic diaspora, the African diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, the Asian diaspora, the Latin diaspora. The, the great pi- byproduct of it is, if you look at American music, it's all been influenced by all those amazing diasporas. And we wouldn't have these, the great j- we wouldn't have jazz, we wouldn't have the blues, we wouldn't have rock and roll rap or hip-hop or anything if it weren't for slaves. It weren't for the, the the absolute raping and pillaging of the African culture, bringing it here, and the the the, the creativity and the soul and the wisdom and the perspicacity, and the, to use the R word that's thrown around these days, true resilience of a culture to overcome. an absolute travesty of of the of the african diaspora and create this music and this but the same is true in terms of asian and jewish intellectualism as well as artistry and everything else so we have an opportunity here and basically what's going to happen is we're going to have to continue to figure out to how to to learn from our past and create the next generation and the next generation has to be informed by the entire community, because it does already. It's like we are we 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 are very segregated, but everybody's got a playlist with all kinds of music on it.
0: My perspective of this might be a little different because uh, coming from Colombia, the Latin culture is a little different than what has been lived up north. Um, we have similar issues completely governed by socioeconomic problems. This country has them both mixed with race, which makes the conversations so, so, so complicated. But beyond that, I I think that you're right. I mean, if you look at most people's playlists or what they love, it's it's a mixed bag and it's not one size fits all. To some degree, I, I... what I don't know about is, like, I, I in some way I feel like the um, broader American culture, you know, Prince and Michael Jackson already won this battle. Like, more people go and see Kendrick Lamar or uh, when he was alive, Tupac or Biggie or Miles Davis or any of them than they go see, than they went and saw Bud Herseth. You know, like, that's just a reality. Of the, the, the I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that American culture already won the battle I don't think there's a battle I agree, and that that's kind of my my uh, perspective coming from Colombia that we we're talking about it right now, like there's a huge battle going on where it's this or that, and to some degree, I feel like that's not how normal people live their existence or their relationship to the arts. Uh, like I said, in Colombia, it might, it feels that way to some degree because we had a threefold uh, mixture through all of Latin America except Mexico, which was the African, indigenous and Spanish culture. And uh, most of our largest art forms, musically speaking, can't coexist one without the other. I mean, you truly can't say that salsa is mostly black drumming because it's, inescapable from the Spanish language it's it just it it goes with it and then likewise cumbia for example is an incredible art form because the melodic structures are all from indigenous chant and then african drumming but the language of the poetry is spanish and you can't divorce them you can't at any point say it belongs to one person and, and so it's created a gen an interesting thing because in latin america the culture that is felt like ours As a general group of people, and so I wish that we could import that feeling to America. That nothing separates me from loving Miles Davis very much because of the other stuff in my music library.
1: So let me let me because you you have lived this and I don't understand. So I need to kind of learn. But my experience of being in Venezuela and Costa Rica, which are really the only places I've been in South and Central America, um, is that there there really is. A, uh, a hierarchy and a separation. And there, you know, I remember when I was playing with the Costa Rican Symphony, National Symphony, and, and uh, I went out after a, a rehearsal concert, masterclass, can't remember what it was. We were out at night and there was a cumbia dance party competition. It became a really big thing that the, that the cultural minister came to this event. Everybody was like, what is going on here? Because they hate cumbia. Now it was Costa Rica, so it's a different culture, and I know each country has its own thing. But I felt the same way in in in, uh, in Venezuela that you know there is still a racial component between indigenous and and black. And
0: so it's an interesting thing because there's been a huge shift uh, in my lifetime that we've felt. I mean, I, I've always been fascinated by this because I felt it in yep. real time, which was that. Latin music kept being made and that was what was actually consumed. Like when you went to a party, that's what was consumed. Nobody was playing, you know, nobody wanted to dance to Whitney Houston in Latin America. But, you know, like we didn't hear that stuff and it, to some degree there was a little bit Michael Jackson and Prince, but really when you wanted to get down to a party, it was Hector Lavoe and Grupo Nietzsche. and that's how it was. However, when you went to people's houses, uh, there was this idea that that was an element and because Latin America as a whole is very class oriented, there was a, a feeling that that was for the lower classes. That was something that your maid would listen to. However, in, there was a huge push by a handful of artists that it became undeniable how good their music was. And it wasn't an academic thing. It was just like, oh, man, that's just everyone wanted to buy this album. Uh, Shakira was one of them in Colombia, and Carlos Biwes, and all of a sudden, the music libraries, and it was so quick, it was like in five years, the music libraries of every Latin family, regardless of class level, yeah. just shifted. And it, it, was, it was also like, it was something that was short-lived. It was something from an, a very American-centric vision of the world from about 1970, To 1990 but if you talk to my grandparents or my parents they were listening to latin music they were listening to boleros and rancheras and all this but my brother my older brother who's 40s generation and the beginning of my lifetime that was considered like who would listen to this stuff and all of a sudden there was a shift that was i can't explain it but all of a sudden we're only listening to latin music and reggaeton came about and that you know and the mixture between cumbia salsa reggaeton it's become kind of the latin pop culture language and it's changed a ton because i if if you had visited colombia in the 90s it would have been seen as like kind of nasty to show you the local culture but now it's all in vogue it's kind of yeah interesting no I, I
1: i think i was there at that i mean the, cl- clearly it was a, it was a, a a pivot point a fulcrum point because went and and was part of the judge and oh by the way this particular cumbia dance party had a whole bunch of trans element so there was a trans you know i think that the person who threw it was was trans and it was like whoa this this could get really interesting really fast and he was he was great it was really we had a we had a blast you know it was uh, one of those things well i just think that you know again it's it goes back to our original conversation which is you know each time there may be some slide back like there was in the rococo there might have been some slide back after Beethoven, right? Brahms seems almost more conservative than than Beethoven, but it, it kept it kept grinding forward. And in fact, many ways, you know, Brahms is and, and Liszt, of course, is even more more you know, chromatic and everything else. So then the question is, you know, wh- where does it go? How does it evolve? How does it get, You know, again, it's like the the demand from the culture needs to be there. Right, so that all of a sudden, when the recordings came on, and all these Europeans, whether it was America or after World War One, they wished for a time like before. Right, this whole idea of of nationalism, both in the social political aspect, but a cultural nationalism. Right, like the whole idea of in 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 the Hindemith sonata of where he says Vivor is not about, you know, like it was earlier in the piece. But like it was in the 19th century when times were simpler. You know, so the interpretation of the music needs to be, that's where it can be understood and deepened and expressed better. You know, that the, 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 the thematic relationship between the A theme and the B theme of the first movement are not the panzers invading Eastern Europe in 1939, but really the machine of society grinding in a very mechanized way. And then being contrasted with a very kind of melancholic, you know, I wish it were like before. And the same idea. It's like, you know, you go to the second movement of the sonata, and, you know, most people just play it as a technical exercise of, oh, this is a fanfare figure, and this is an appoggiatura, and this is this thing, and you have to be able to do this. And 99% of the people I ask have no idea why he would write a minuet and a gavotte in a piece in 1939. And most of the time, nobody ever calls it a, a neoclassical piece. And the only thing that, in, that, that really puts it in the shadow of the war, of course, is the Trauermusik music of the last movement, and that all men must die. And there's this real sense of, like, this is the beginning of the end of European civilization, and all things die. All civilizations pass, and, you know, they, they can come back again in different ways, but, um, you know... European culture, when, when we were digging around, as I said, when we were digging around in the mud and in the, in the bogs, <laughs> the Persians
0: were making ice cream,
1: Chinese, you know, had extra, Chinese and Arab had extraordinary math. I mean, they had, they, you know, there was no European algebra before, you know, before 1500, you know, so it's like, again, this idea of, of the supremacy of a European American culture is, 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 is a, of course, it's a myth. The supremacy of any culture is a myth. And this is where I think we have a wonderful opportunity. We've got black, white, brown, beige in the, in the streets all saying, we got to fix this. You know, and you know, we have powers that be, and it's not just our government, but it's across the world, you know, using the, the most poisonous philosophy, the way they think about the world is wrong. Right, and the way they, the way people are speaking about what's, why, what is good and just in this world, has to be, has to change. And when we have this number of world leaders who are autocrats and murderers, and nobody really cares, when 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 the leader of a country can assassinate his own brother with poison, we haven't moved very 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 far from you know the the 14th century Europe or. Anyplace else, right? We haven't changed, and this is true. You know, whether it's the the Saudis killing their own journalists in Turkey, or the the Syrians killing their own people, or the American policing military killing their own people, and you know, well, really, really, we are at this point now. That's all of a sudden the the thought process is beginning to change, and now the question is, do they follow through? And this is the same thing, you know. When, when, when Rodney King and, and, and you know, Garner were, were both killed, the Europeans were not in the streets. Now the Europeans are in the streets. And the Australians and everybody are talking about it. You know, what's going to be interesting is, will it go flip? Will the mirror turn and will the Chinese and what they're doing in India and what they're doing in Hong Kong and what they're doing in, in, in the South China Sea and what they're doing in all different kinds of places, you know, will the world
0: call them on it? I think the part where I I think uh, things are getting a little mixed in this element of the politics of today is that I I think there's a general unrest in the world. I mean, we saw these protests happening in Latin America earlier for a different reason. And to some degree, the fact that the Europeans came out to march to me reveals that there's a a deeper angst and that people don't know why. Uh, In America, we know why because it's, it's staring you in the face through the, the lens of race. I, I think there's it's also a general... in the
1: face with the mendacity of our government.
0: Oh, absolutely. But, but there's a feeling to me that I've been waiting for this for a little bit, not, not so much the political discussion, but the fact that I think that centuries never start at the century. And I have been waiting for the 21st century to start. It's starting. I don't know what it looks like at the other end. I think we're having conversations that sometimes are not helpful in our diagnosis of real problems. However, it's a start to recognize a problem. I just hope we can make the shift towards the constructive elements of the conversation because I agree with you that some things don't change in humanity because human beings are fundamentally... Uh, similar. I mean, we don't change that much. We have better ideas, but it's it's a lo- it's an eternal project until we're no longer here. But I do think some things have shifted. Europe was the most dangerous place in the world at the beginning of last century, and it was volatile, and it no longer is. And I think part of it is that the American project, for me, is still very much real in its inception and in the way it's infected the world. That. Even though we do have, still have South, I mean North Korea, and we do have China, which is a huge problem. In general, democracy is a good idea, no matter how how we frame it, and and it's just about continuing to push the the what we know to be more morally superior. Um, and this is this is where you're talking about China. It worries me a little bit, and not to get like it has nothing to do with race, but. It worries me that the way of thinking of a power like China is, to me, morally inferior to the way of thinking of the United States of America or England before it. I
1: really disagree.
0: I mean, I really feel like they are just carrying
1: on the the, the you know they're, they're under the guise of communism. They're carrying on the the imperial the imperial model. I don't, and I don't think we were particularly you know we were not we were not particularly benevolent and believed. The English, the English were, you know, when they empire, the way they,
0: they moved into the Americas, the way they moved into South Asia and, and Africa. No, no, I, I'm, a, I'm 100% on you with that. And, and what America has done, for example, in, in South America is appalling installing fascist dictators to suit their needs and destroying democracies that are in their I agree. At the end, and this is what I believe about culture, I read something Schiller wrote, Last night, about this. It's when Nero is gone, the marbles remain. And I think that the marbles that Western culture has been leaving or Persia before it have been stellar. I don't really think that China is leaving any marbles because they censor any form of independent thought. So, you know, a country that completely determines the creative output of its people cannot possibly be a benign force for humanity. Looking forward, so like even though America has committed a ton of excesses, we have the building blocks left over because there was some form of liberalism from both England and America to at least have a path forward we We have Locke and we have Thomas Paine and we have Adams and we have Lincoln and we have and we have you know it, it, it goes across races, but I, I do what worries me about China more than the imperial thing, which I think is universal, that will continue to happen is. We're blo- by giving them the keys to the house, we're blocking the artistic output, not of just that country, but of the world because they're already blocking the artistic output of the United States of America. I mean, every movie has to go to China to be approved by a Chinese censor. And the NBA can't say whatever it wants. I mean, that's a sports that's, organization. You know,
1: that's, that's a very, very good point. Um, and, you know, so I think that um, ultimately, artistically, this is where... Uh, as a as a as as we move forward to bring it back to what we're trying to do now or what we can do now is I think it's because of the nature that it, what you said was very very accurate that everybody with a laptop and a microphone can do just about anything at this point. And then what are they going to do with it? Are they going to do long tones or or, or practice patterns or uh, are they going to create a pop song or are they going to have a blog and have wonderful conversations like this or are they going to actually you know? Um, really, really imagine a piece of art that that will inspire people, and and, and that's a very good question. The idea of censorship, um, I still think that there's a some, there are people who are doing creative things in China that will. I think subversion is part of every culture, and ultimately, this particular regime will 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 change. And I think what's happening here. Is is uh, the byproduct of unfinished business in the 1960s, you know, that thing the civil rights movement. Um, Martin Luther King took a whole lot of flack for moving away from civil rights and into poverty rights. And um, there is a there is a there speaking of zeitgeist, I think there is um People are starting to get it that we can't do it by ourselves and that, um, you know, a couple hundred people owning 90% of the wealth of the world um, is, is not healthy and that in order for societies to really, really grow, everything has to shift. And it has to start with education. And this, goes, this is where it's going to come all the way back. And you know this is where we have to be tireless advocates for music education as one of the languages. This is where STEM is so short-sighted, and it should be STEAM. And I've, you know all the artists talk about it, but we have got to get some people who are going to actually push that one through because they all, you know, everybody says it trains the mind, it changes the mind, and everything else, and it's true. But it also makes people feel. And if there's anything we need in these days of, of um, you know social media and and constant screen is is um is more is more feeling it's more empathy right the 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 empathy vacuum is very 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 clear you know not long ago showing the murder of somebody on the evening news people couldn't couldn't deal with it now they look at it and they watch these you know, it becomes... It's not even porn anymore. There's, we're so inured, you know? And that's and that's the thing, is that we need to be... We have to get this, this community to, the, to a place where each conversation is like you and I are having, and it's really direct, and it's honest, and it's respectful, and it's caring. And there's way, 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 way too much broadcasting and not enough listening. I don't know who it was, but it was somebody you know, threw out something on the the Facebook talking about, you know, being more professional with their presentation on Facebook. What do they need to do to to brand and market themselves well on, on Facebook? You know, and Eddie was saying study scores. Right? And I said, and you know, and and read great books by great thinkers and great philosophers, right? And they can be contemporary, and they should be contemporary. And tomorrow, for Juneteenth, you know, we should be reading Frederick Douglass as a national book week kind of thing. And, you know, because there are, and we should be, you know, we should be getting back into, you know, James Baldwin has fallen out of the public school. And when you have a thinker and a writer like Ralph Ellison or Maya Angelou or James Baldwin, you know, and we should be, we should be, you know, really, really studying certain voices of the rap community, of the hip hop community, especially the hip hop community, because, you know, they're living a a reality that, you know, 60% of America is not living.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that crossover is so vital too. Uh, I was thinking about this in the context of Columbia, that, Uh, There's a rhetoric right now, and it has been for a long time, maybe longer than 30 years, but it's really taking hold now. In Colombia that, and I see it in Mexico and, and Peru, this idea that we got screwed over by colonialism, and so now it's game over, and anything that's tinged by it is bad. And I understand the feeling, however, I was... Reading Garcia Marquez, and um, not, I was reading an interview, and most of what he talks about is two things: it's a local folklore from his grandmother, and William Faulkner and Marcel Proust. And so, what I got, what what I got from that is, it's not one or the other. Like I don't see why we need to eliminate Marcel Proust or William Faulkner because then we don't get Garcia Marquez, who was a poor Latin man from a tiny town who just happened to have a library in that town. And I feel the same with hip hop. There's a misunderstanding by a lot of Americans, including people in music schools and and in academia that it's somehow a language of quote unquote, the people. But if, if we really got rid of some of the way that the hip hop artists themselves talk about what they do. And we stripped it down. These people are the nerds of their community. I mean, nobody that can rhyme like Chance the Rapper is an uneducated... He comes from, he
1: comes from a you know an upper middle class family. Yeah. I mean,
0: I mean, I know what they talk about in these songs, but that's part of the art form. It has nothing to do with who they really are. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I, I, I agree that we should be looking at culture as a whole. The, the idea that we separated to such a degree is not helpful
1: and that's where, that's, that's what things are gonna uh, ha, you're gonna have to shift you know i have to teach a music 100 class in the fall and i'm gonna be intre- i have to really really you know i'm gonna have to really spend the summer kind of i'm gonna have to pick your brain because you know to really be representative of, of the various art forms and you know hit the highlights and make it interesting you know ultimately i think i think this is where you know Going back to that very simple concept of 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 unity and variety, or you you could say form and variation, right? As well as um, surprise, expectation, and surprise, or what do you call that? Yeah, inevitability and surprise.
0: Yeah, and I know we've been going for a while, but I, I have a question about how powerful do you think, or how little do you care? I guess is the question here that I've always found that the greatest art is the one that might deal in immediate subjects in a universal fashion. That um, perhaps if if Shostakovich had been more deliberate in his critique of Stalin, it would not have survived to be relevant today, or that if Julius Caesar, the the way uh, Shakespeare wrote it, was too historical, it would not be relevant to all these different periods of history as the representation of the collapse of senatorial democracy. How important do you think that universality is to push in the language that we deal, deal with as far as reaching humanity?
1: I, I wonder if universality is unavoidable.
0: I guess the reason I'm asking, I'm seeing uh, in art music in LA, I don't know how it's being felt in Chicago and New York, that it's become such a political endeavor that it's almost too obvious.
1: Yeah. Well, that won't last. Again, it's, you know, ultimately it's like, it's like when you do writing a piece that's like Lacherman or, or Zonders or something like that, and you have all these gestures and sounds and everything else, you still have to write a good piece. It's like electronic music, you know, you know, a, a bunch of really, really cool electronic sounds doesn't make a piece doesn't make, and, and the universality of, of something that is, that will come Out of something that is um, inspired and well crafted and edited, universality is you know that is where the the having a a really kind of intuitive and um, reflective, contemplative to be really really feeling deeply, to be really thinking deeply, to be really appreciative of all the things in the world. If we're going to bring all these elements together, or even just some of them, and as you bring them together. Like like Marquez did, who's one of my favorite authors, and I am so envious that you can read him in Spanish and I, I, I stumbled my way through and then I go to a translation. But you know, it's you know, it is this sense of there is a universality and we don't make it. We tap into it, we express it when we really, really feel and are aware of of the nature of that universality. And the thing about it is is that you know, if it's if it's conceptual, if it's got an agenda, if it's, even if it's political, you know, it's like the the Eroica Symphony. At a certain point, he started, he wrote it as a political statement, then he wrote it as a political anti-statement. You know, again, it's like, Portion. it doesn't yeah fine if it helps you sell it right basically it helps you sell the piece right
0: and even even in the political nature i think that there is a universal element to it like garcia marquez when read from the focus of uh colombian history and latin history particularly and you don't have to read it with that lens by the way but if you do the subjects are not they're, they're still universal in their pain i mean it's the, the even the concept of a hundred years of solitude which is how the book ends with like a, In English, it would be like the generations condemned to 100 years of solitude. It's still true. Like, it's something so Latin in our history, but it's universal in the sense that we're condemned to recreate the past until we change major elements of our history. And the question is do we
1: ever? Is this, this was, and on a certain level where we go to classical music or classical theater, this is what makes Shakespeare Shakespeare and what makes the, the, the great uh, Greek tragedies and Ibsen and Beckett, you know, all these things. And it's, it's not conceptual art. It actually is really, really, um, it does. It really does point to a universal. It does point to an absolute truth that um, is all that only art can, you know, but that an editorial or a, or a podcast will never, will never get there. We're, we're talking around, instead of ex- actually being in the moment of, of, of experience.
0: Well, Steve, thanks. you. know, I, I, we've been going almost two hours, so I want to do this again some other time. This was great.
1: This is an interesting time. I, you know, I wish I were your age to be honest with you and everybody else is going, Oh really? I'm really afraid. I'm like, no, man, you're young. You're, compa- you're You've got amazing intellect. You've got a great heart. You've got great talent. You've got you know world class experience and you've got another, you know, 70 years before you croak. So, you know.
0: Yeah, I think it's, and I agree with you, I think it's a scary time for everyone financially, and we're seeing the institutions that we thought were going to employ us crumble, but that's nothing new historically. I mean, this happens.
1: Yeah, we're not the ones, you know, it's not about being employed. It's hitting something mm-hmm. that, that people have to hear. You've got to hear this, right? Like, it's just like the first time somebody brought, and you were a little trumpet geek, and somebody brought Bud playing Alpine Symphony or Bud playing, I mean, my favorite one is Battle on the Ice from Alexander Nevsky and, you know, both him and it, the whole section is just like, the whole organ, the, just bringing it, you know, the first time you hear that, it's like, you gotta hear this and you're just, I, was, I, I must have bought a case of those records to give away.
0: Oh my God, I know. I, I mean, there's, this is a different conversation that I would love to have with you in a longer format, but it's, it's something that's sort of been lost. I, I still remember, I was still part of a era where you went and bought an album and that's the only one you could get for a month, you know? And I was in a family where they bought it. it was for a you, budget. Yeah. So that's great.
1: No, same thing. And I would say the same thing about Donnerstock. right? The album. Right. I still have like, I was in storage yesterday to get EA out for Eddie for, cause he was doing a, uh, a, a, uh, Juneteenth event today with and, and over the weekend so they're using my pa and, and um i have all my lps in storage because i got no place to put them here and i got you know and they my kids took my uh, my turntable <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know right there on the top of the stack was there was um was was Donnerstag and right next to it was Sirius.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I mean the, the part that is lost a little bit that I just remember and I still kind of have that habit is you get this thing and you have this thing for a month before you can get it, another thing and the exploration of this thing becomes engulfing to a degree like what you're saying, the impact is so huge. I remember the first time I heard Louis Armstrong because I bought an album of his and it's like, it's not just about hearing him. It's about that second play. And, and like you said, your whole life changes. And the first time I heard Kind of Blue. And I got kind of tricked into new music for trumpet because my parents didn't like the Maurice Saunders recordings because they sounded dated. So they had bought Hokan's early albums of Telemon and stuff. You could get those in Columbia. And when I traveled to Miami one year, I picked up some more Hokan albums. And they happen to be the one with Henderson and Gruber and that alone, like putting that in and you're expecting, you know, more Baroque hits. It was like, whoa, <laughs> and you have to live with it. It's like, I have this album now and I have to listen to it. Cool,
1: cool, cool. Yeah, well, that's, you know, yeah, that's, they, the, radios, the radios in Boston still uh, only play my Baroque stuff. i given them all the other new music stuff and they, they want no part of it. Okay, can't I'll play the Shostakovich, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I do have to rock, I got one in fifteen minutes and I haven't eaten all day.
0: All right, Steve, thanks so much.